Hello, and welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush podcast, episode 14, a bonus episode, Indigenous Peoples and Russian America. I'm Keith Halliday. And I'm Pascal Halliday. Today, we're going to step back a couple hundred years to the early 1700s and look at the experience of indigenous peoples as the first Europeans, the Russians, arrived in Alaska. Originally, this was just going to be a short section of our upcoming episode on indigenous peoples and the gold rush, but as anyone who's been to the Alaska State Museum in Juneau will know, the story of indigenous-Russian relations is deep and complex and important to know as the pre-story to the Klondike gold rush. While Alaska and the Yukon were completely new to most stampeders in 1897, the Tlingit and other indigenous peoples along the coast viewed them in the context of their experiences with the Russian Empire. So we decided to make this into a special bonus episode. In our next episode, we'll go back to 1897 and the Klondike Gold Rush story. And we should apologize in advance for our Tlingit and Russian pronunciation. Back in episode one, we talked about how the Yukon and Alaska had been inhabited by indigenous peoples for tens of thousands of years before Robert Campbell and the Hudson's Bay Company arrived, so we won't go into detail that far back again. We'll start just a few hundred years ago, when the Russians arrived in Alaska. This was well before the Hudson's Bay Company made it to Fort Selkirk. In fact, by the time of the gold rush, the Tlingit peoples who feature so prominently in Klondike gold rush history had been dealing with the Russians, and then the British and Americans, for over 150 years. In the early 1700s, as French colonists pushed west from New France and English colonists expanded the 13 colonies, the Russian Empire was spreading east from Moscow across Siberia. As with the French and English in North America, furs were a major attraction. A class of hardy and often ruthless Russian adventurers and fur traders called Promeshleniki came into being. They were, in many ways, like the coureurs de bois of the Canadian fur trade. However, the Russian conquest of Siberia was much more forceful than the spread of the Hudson's Bay Company across Canada. As the Russian Empire arrived in a region, it promised to protect the local indigenous peoples, but demanded their allegiance, and imposed the Yasak, a kind of tribute or tax payable in furs. Keep in mind that serfdom was common in Russia at this time. With many Russians lacking their own freedom, the attitude of the empire to indigenous peoples was often incredibly harsh. Once the Pramoshleniki reached the Pacific Ocean, it was natural to start thinking about colonizing whatever was on the other side of it. Tsar Peter the Great decided to launch a major mapping, exploration, and scientific program. As part of this, Danish sea captain Vitus Bering made a number of exploration voyages, setting sail from the Pacific port of Petropavlovsk on the Kamchatka Peninsula. The Bering Strait between Russia and Alaska is named after him. In 1741, Bering set out on what would turn out to be his last voyage, with two ships headed east. The expedition included a bevy of scientists. Bering commanded one ship and Alexei Chirikov the other. The two ships were separated but continued on their way. After six weeks at sea, Chirikov sighted land, probably Prince of Wales Island in the Alaskan Panhandle. What happened next is a little uncertain, but it does, perhaps, provide some somber foreshadowing for the antagonism and suspicion that quickly developed between the Russians and the Klingit. Chirikov sent a boat ashore to explore and get water, but the men never returned. He sent a second boat, but it didn't come back either. We don't know if both boats had accidents, or the men were killed or captured by Klingit warriors, or if they simply decided that it was a good chance to escape from Russian naval discipline. Anyway, eventually, Chirikov decided to sail on. 
The next day, hundreds of miles away, Bering also sighted land. He spotted a huge mountain and named it Mount St. Elias, which today is the second tallest mountain in both Canada and the United States since it sits right on the border. He sent German naturalist Georg Steller to land. You might recognize Steller's name. The Steller's J is named after him, as well as Steller's Eider, Steller's Sea Eagle, Steller's Sea Lion, and Steller's Sea Cow. Bering gave Steller only 10 hours on shore to document his scientific findings, which Steller compared to the 10 years he had spent preparing for the expedition, traveling across Siberia, and sailing to Alaska. Steller then survived shipwreck on Bering Island, which Bering himself did not, and a bitter winter of starvation, only to die halfway across Siberia on the way home. His notes and drawings were a sensation when they made it to St. Petersburg, as were the sea otter pelts the expedition had found. Within a few years, Russian Pramishlaniki, that is fur traders, were setting sail from Siberia to seek their fortunes in Alaska. Armed with muskets and steel weapons, they used harsh methods. These included enslaving indigenous people that they encountered, or taking family members hostage to force the others to harvest furs for them. In the 1780s, the Shelikov-Golikov Company attempted to organize and consolidate the fur trade in Russian America. Violence grew, culminating in revolts by indigenous peoples in the Aleutian Islands. Russian retaliatory expeditions killed hundreds and destroyed boats and hunting equipment, often leaving survivors with little to survive on. The most infamous event was the Awak Massacre, where some estimate up to 2,000 indigenous people were killed on Kodiak Island. Throughout this period, more Russian colonists as well as Russian Orthodox missionaries continued to arrive and European diseases decimated indigenous populations. The statistics, when they're available, are shocking. Deaths from disease killed 80% of the people in some Aleut communities. Next time you're in Juneau, we recommend a visit to the new Russian-American exhibits at the Alaska State Museum. The documents and objects from this period, from shackles to whips, are sobering indeed. In 1790, Alexander Baranoff appears in Alaska. The Baranoff Hotel on Franklin Street in downtown Juneau is named after him, even though Juno didn't exist when he was in Alaska. We're going to tell you his story, since it encapsulates so much about Russian America. It's also worth pointing out that, like many history books, we're going to tell you the story of Baranoff in considerably more detail than we can give you about the Klingit leaders he dealt with, since the Russians only documented their side of the story. This, fortunately, is changing as more sources are published from the Klingit point of view. The episode page on our website, klondikegoldrush.org, has links to National Park Service commentary, as well as to Anchorage Daily News articles and a new book called Russians in Klingit, Alaska. Baranoff grew up as the son of a lower-class merchant near St. Petersburg, but ran away at the age of 15. After a spell as a clerk in Moscow, and then getting married, he took his young family to the Siberian frontier to find opportunity. By 1790, however, his wife and daughter had left him to go back to St. Petersburg, and he was near bankruptcy after some failed business ventures. He decided to accept an offer from the Shelikov-Golikov company to manage their Alaskan fur business. Baranoff was shipwrecked on the way to Kodiak, and only survived the winter thanks to help from local Aleut islanders, before making it to Kodiak the next year. He seems to have been relatively successful. He brought over 30 serf families from Russia to farm in Alaska. It's not totally clear how that turned out for them. He had three children with his Aleut partner, and when word arrived from Russia that his wife was dead, he married his Aleut partner, legitimizing their children in the eyes of the church. 
1799, the Russian government decided to create the Russian-American Company to take over from the privately owned Shelikov-Golikov Company. St. Petersburg appointed Baranov to be in charge, but it took a year for the news of all this to reach Baranov across Siberia and the Pacific Ocean. By this point, he was essentially running Russian America as his own outfit. Hearing that the Klingit down south and what is now the Alaskan Panhandle were trading with non-Russians, Baranov decided to build a fort in the region. This would culminate in the Battle of Sitka, the last and one of the biggest military confrontations in Russian Alaska. Once, while in Juneau, we had the opportunity to go to the Perseverance Theatre in Douglas and see Battles of Fire and Water, a play by David Hunsaker. It's also been performed at the John F. Kennedy Center for Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. It's the story of the Russian-Klingit confrontation at Sitka, with scenes enacted in English, Klingit, and Russian, so the audience can see the situation from different points of view. It's very effective and gives some insight into the events that would cost so many people their lives. In 1795, Baranov visited Sitka Sound and made some kind of deal with the Klingit. In return for some money, Baranov believed he'd bought land and ensured exclusive trading rights. But we don't know exactly what deal the Klingit leaders thought they had agreed to. In any case, in 1799, Baranov returned to build a fort with several ships, about 100 Russian civilians and military men, and about 1,000 Aleut and other indigenous peoples brought along from other Russian colonial outposts. They began building a frontier fort, complete with stockade, barracks, and a blacksmith hut. Russian-Klingit relations were fine at the beginning, but then began to deteriorate. The fort and large force made it clear the Russians weren't just visiting to do some trading. The Russian Empire would expect furs and labor. Violent interactions began to occur, but not yet overt war. That came later, two years later. Baranov was back in Kodiak. In June 1802, Klingit warriors attacked the fort and captured it. During the fighting, a Klingit leader named Kalyan distinguished himself during the assault on the fort. He'll be a key figure later on. There were many casualties, including allegations of extreme brutality on both sides, and many of the Russian and allied indigenous people in the fort were killed. Those who escaped managed to get news to Baranov, including via a British sea captain who charged a significant sum. It's up to you if you prefer to call it a fee or a ransom to return some of the survivors to Baranov. Well aware that Russian retaliation would be harsh, Klingit clan leaders debated how to prepare. Some proposed calling other clans up and down the coast for reinforcements, although how successful this would be was unclear. A respected shaman named Stunuk, knowing that the Russians would return with cannons and ships, advocated that the Klingit build new fortifications of their own, including a fort made of thick logs designed to resist cannon fire. The fort was strategically placed in an area with extensive shallow water to keep big, cannon-equipped Russian ships at a distance. They also agreed to unite under a single military leader, Kalyan, whose leadership during the assault on the Russian fort was so well remembered. Two years later, in 1804, Baranov returned. He had several warships and an estimated 500 Aleut and Aleutik warriors. The reinforcements the Klingit hoped for from allied clans in Cake and Angoon did not appear. The Klingit and Sitka had managed to acquire gunpowder, but... According to some accounts, when they sent a party to retrieve it from where it was stored, the Russians managed to hit the canoe with a shot, causing a massive explosion and extensive Klingit casualties. The Russians then had their Aleut allies, or perhaps conscripts would be a better word, tow one of their ships closer to the Klingit fort and began to bombard it with cannons. 
Baranov and 400 Russians and indigenous warriors landed, and Baranov led a direct frontal attack on the fort. The Klingit waited until the attackers were at close range, then opened fire, with devastating results. The Russians' indigenous troops turned and fled for their boats. Kalyan at this point led a sortie. Klingit warriors burst out of the fort, armed with both muskets and traditional Klingit armor and weapons. They either pursued the Aleut warriors to their boats or attacked the Russians hand-to-hand. During this fighting, Baranov himself seems to have been wearing traditional armor. In his case, a vest of chainmail right out of the Middle Ages. The Russians continued the attack, despite the flight of some of their indigenous allies, but Kalyan and his best fighters began to overpower one of the Russian flanks. Baranov himself was badly wounded, apparently hit in the chest by a shot. His antique chainmail may have saved his life. The Russian retreat threatened to turn into a rout, but the offshore artillery on the Russian ship came to their rescue. The outcome of day one of the battle was the Klingit, undefeated, holding their fort, and the military forces of one of the world's most powerful empires back on their ships, counting their losses and nursing their wounds. The second day saw the Russians continue their bombardment of the fort, but to little effect thanks to the thick logs. The Russians demanded the Klingit surrender, which they refused to do, and the Klingit demanded the Russian surrender, which they also refused to do. However, the strategic situation was not looking good for the Klingit. Other communities up and down the coast had not sent reinforcements, and gunpowder was in short supply. Secretly, the Klingit began to withdraw. On the third day, the Klingit successfully bluffed the Russians with offers of a truce and negotiations, while secretly evacuating children and elders. By the time the Russians landed in force on day four, the Klingit were gone on an epic and arduous march to safety, which is still commemorated today as the Survival March. When you're in Sitka, be sure to visit the National Historic Park, which has a treasure trove of Klingit and Russian artifacts from the period. The Russians destroyed the Klingit fort and built a new fortress for themselves, complete with stockade, garrison, and cannons. In fact, they doubled down on their Sitka position, moving the capital of Russian America to Sitka in 1808. It was the last major battle between the Russians and indigenous people in Alaska, and the last time traditional Klingit battle gear was used in combat. While there were no more major wars, skirmishes, ambushes, and minor uprisings occurred regularly in the following decades. The Sitka Klingit, for an extended period, attempted to blockade the Russian trading fort at Sitka, discouraging other indigenous people from trading there. American traders also sold them guns and ammunition, much to the vexation of the Russians. Over the following decades, minor reforms occurred, such as in 1818, when the Tsar granted indigenous people in Alaska civil rights equivalent to a townsman in Russia. While the rights of a townsman in the autocratic Russian Empire were not something we would be very happy about having today, it was at least better than serf status. Other reforms tried to tackle abuses of indigenous people by the Russian-American company officials, which shocked some members of the government back in St. Petersburg. The Russian capital stayed at Sitka until the Russians sold Alaska to the United States in 1867. But the last decades of Russian America were difficult ones. Overhunting badly hurt fur revenues, as did ongoing Klingit hostility and blockades. And the Russian-American company often struggled financially. Despite the efforts of various governors to get the colony on sounder financial ground, Governor Wrangell, for example, tried to introduce potato farming. The colony's perennial struggles were a major reason why Russia eventually sold Alaska to the United States. The Klingit may have wondered what right the Russians had to sell Alaska, but no one in either St. Petersburg or Washington, D.C. worried very much about that. 
the Tlingit and other indigenous Alaskan peoples would now be dealing with a very different kind of government, from a country that was much richer and more dynamic than Tsarist Russia, as would become abundantly clear when gold was discovered in 1896. If you liked this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really liked the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the cost of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but, as an old miner might say, it would be nice to make enough to get our grub stake back. Thank you.